Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Yes, uh, it's, it's very special. So um, when we rise, the first thing we do in the morning is we kiss the floor, we make an act of consecration to Our Lady, and we offer her the whole day. And we renew this consecration at the beginning of each task by saying a Hail Mary and re- renewing our consecration. I am all thine and all that I have is thine. Um, and so with these little prayers throughout the day, we we lift our gaze back up to Our Lady. We ask her for her light, her intercession at each moment. And even when we're distracted, we know Our Lady is not distracted. (laughs) And she's attentive to us and knows what we need. (laughs) Sister Mary Josepha of the Eucharist is a young Benedictine nun in Missouri. She tells me about her vocation and her community, about their special charism to emulate the quiet, sustaining love of Mary for the early church. About the book she and her sisters wrote together, Brides of Christ, and about the remarkable miracle earlier this year that drew the eyes of the world to their little community. On Almost Good Catholics. Welcome to Almost Good Catholics, a conversation about theology and apologetics. I'm your host, Chris Adinitz, and I get to ask interesting people the interesting questions and they share their conclusions, explaining what we know, how we know it, why we think we know it. I hope this dialogue may help us approach the truth and have a really great time doing it. If you'd like to join the conversation, please email almostgoodcatholics at gmail.com. Today, I have the great privilege of speaking to Sister Mary Josepha of the Eucharist. Sister Mary Josepha grew up in a Catholic homeschooling family that fostered her interest in religious life from an early age. Her father was a U.S. Marine, and her family moved frequently. By the time Sister Mary Josepha was 12, she had lived in nine homes. She and her twin sister attended Thomas Aquinas College in California, where the liberal arts program, culminating in the study of sacred theology, led her to pursue two more years of studies at the International Theological Institution in Gaming, Austria. In 2010, the year after she finished her studies at the Institute, she entered the Benedictines of Mary, Queen of Apostles. When she entered the Benedictines of Mary, they were still in a temporary residence in Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, But they finished their permanent building in Gower, uh, Missouri, and moved there while Sister Mary Josepha was still a postulant. She received her religious name in honor of St. Joseph. And in 2019, she was sent as one of the founding members of the community's first daughter house, the Monastery of St. Joseph, in the Ozark Mountains near Ava, Missouri. Continuing with the Marine Corps tradition, She has moved three times as a religious sister and is looking forward to a fourth and perhaps final move when the permanent monastery is finished, hopefully next year. The catalyst for our talk is a new book that Sister Mary Josepha and the other sisters in her community have published. It's called Brides of Christ. It is a very beautiful children's book. It rhymes. It has illustrations that remind me of the old Madeline book that we all had as kids. Uh, And it 
goes not only through the the, the daily life of a, a religious sister, but also the seasons of the year and the different kinds of um, activities and also the the actual becoming a bride of Christ. So I think it's very interesting for kids and families to get this is exactly the sort of thing you should give your godchildren. <laughs> Sister Mary Josepha, welcome to Almost Good Catholic. Thank you, Chris. It's a privilege to be with you today. Do you have, do you have a joke to share? Yes. Uh, we, you might have heard of our founding sister, Sister Wilhelmina. She was fond of telling a joke at recreation now and again. One of her favorites was to ask the visitors, how do you catch a unique rabbit? How do you catch a unique rabbit? And they would pause puzzled. <laughs> how do you catch a unique rabbit? She'd say, you don't know? You sneak up on him. That's wonderful. <laughs> and then how do you catch a tame rabbit? <laughs> The tame way. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's wonderful. Um, and I, I want to ask you about Sister Wilhelmina um, uh, because she's quite famous. She was um, she her body was was she died some years ago and her body was exhumed and it was incorrupted. Mm-hmm. What, what does this mean for us yeah. and what tell us the story? It's a beautiful story. I think, um, in a way, the the miracle began four years previous to our finding her body. It was actually when she passed. Um, it was a very beautiful passing, um, and it was a special grace for our community. Our community is very young, so most of the sisters are in their 30s and 40s, um, but we had just this one elderly sister, Sister Wilhelmina, and she had persevered in religious life for over 70 years. And so for us to see that sort of fidelity and perseverance all the way up into the very end was precious for us. We always called her our treasure. Um, and so when the time came for her to to pass away, it was um, right when our community had begun the daughter house. And so six of us had been sent to the foundation in Southern Missouri and we received the phone call, Sister Wilhelmina's passing. And so we had this wrench in our hearts. Oh, we won't be there for this beautiful, uh, significant moment in our, in our history. But Mother Abba said, no, you should be here. And so she called us back home. Um, and we waited at her Beth, at her bedside for several days, um, praying. We sang all of her favorite hymns. And even though she couldn't open her eyes, she was trying to sing them with us. Um, and as the days went on, we thought, well, maybe it won't be that we're all here when she actually does pass. And we were resigned to that. But on the very day that it actually happened, May 29th, the whole community was assembled in her room, all of her sisters, so over 40 of us. And we were we prayed the rosary, her favorite prayer. We sang her favorite hymns again. Uh, we prayed Compline, which is the last of the hours of the divine office in the day. And then Mother Abbess blessed us each with holy water. And she realized as she was blessing Sister Wilhelmina that Sister had just passed, had breathed her last very peacefully. So the, the moment was precious and it was significant for all of us. Um, and we always treasured that as a special grace from our Lord for our community. So four years later, um, we wanted to bring her relics into our Abbey Church, as is customary in Benedictine houses, to have the relics of the, the founder or the foundress in the Abbey Church. Um, and it was a surprise in a certain sense. We don't expect extraordinary graces like incorruptibility from our Lord, but we felt like this was a confirmation of that grace that he'd given us four years ago when he took her so peacefully from us. Um, this was a, in the way our Lord saying, 
um, a humble hidden life is precious to me. And I, I will show you this extraordinary sign just to confirm that, you know, and her, not only was her body in a remarkable state of preservation, but her habit, which should have disintegrated in such a time was also perfectly intact. Um, if you look at the pictures the, of her burial, we had lined the coffin with um, material like satiny material. But when we exhumed her, that was all disintegrated completely. You couldn't tell there had been any cloth around the sides of the coffin. But sister, her habit, her veil, everything was perfectly intact. Um, so for us, it was um, uh, our Lord blessing her fidelity to wearing the habit. She suffered very much to continue wearing that traditional habit. Um, so for us, it was a very personal grace. It was uh, something for our, our community. And it's almost been a surprise to see everyone else watching, you mm -hmm. know, to see the world so interested too. Um, and I think uh, it's kind of an overflow. So he want, our Lord wanted to, um, wanted to give us this, this grace for our community at this time, but he also wanted to give Sister Wilmina to everyone as a sign of hope, to a confirmation of their faith, um, and to show that the, what we suffer um, for fidelity to the church, fidelity to, to tradition, um, is is precious in his eyes, and he will reward that. That's that's very beautiful, and I often feel that I perceive little miracles, but they're all so subjective that I think it's happening. Somebody else might say, like, "Yeah, well, that's a coincidence." But here's a case where mm -hmm. there's no question that something a supernatural has occurred, uh, and I, the way I, you know, read about it online and heard about it as people are speaking about it, I think it has increased a lot of faith and joy uh, in in the country and in the world. Um, are you? Is there going to be a cause for canonization and that sort of thing, or that it may happen? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it may happen. There is a, a due process that has to be observed. Yeah. So, um, waiting a certain amount of time since death, um, documentation of certain miracles and such. So, I, I think we just have to proceed very slowly and yeah. very docilely, being attentive to the the due process that the church has in place. Um, but yeah. for, in a way, we're not too concerned about it because we feel like the grace was received. <laughs> and, That's right. Um, you know, if, if, if Sister Wilmina is recognized officially by the church, so much the better. But um, we're very grateful for the grace that's been given already. Yeah, no, ab absolutely. I, I agree completely. Well, let's talk about a little bit about your life and how you became part of this community and a bride of Christ yourself. Uh, you moved so much as a child. Uh, I sort of, it, it, as I read the the biography there, I, I was thinking of Augustine, our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. And you, you seem like a person who has found her home. Um, how did you discern the life you are uh, living now and Tell us, tell us about that. It was uh, a long discernment in a way because the the seeds were planted early when I was only about eight. Um, I read the saints' stories and I thought maybe God is calling me to be a nun like so many of these saints. But how do you do that? Where do you do that? <laughs> um, so I just um, I kept the thought in my heart, but I didn't know how to fulfill it. And then it, when I went to college at Thomas Aquinas College, I was very blessed to know other students who were discerning religious life and who knew good communities that would be worth visiting. So all of a sudden concrete um, options came 
to the fore. But also, I think even more significantly, while I was at Thomas Aquinas College, I learned the value of a contemplative life. Um, and so I, I, I fell in love with the truth, um, especially the truth about God as presented in sacred theology. And I, I realized that there was value in spending one's life just contemplating that truth. Um, so I think at, there at Thomas Aquinas College, the, the seeds of the contemplative vocation were planted. It took a little while to find this community. I was very blessed to know a priest who introduced me to these sisters. Um, but when I visited, I felt like things were falling into place. It was the dream that I'd had as a child of having the traditional religious life. Um, and it had the contemplative aspect that I had learned to value um, at, at my liberal arts studies. Um, and just along those lines also, when um, I can remember when I was in my teens, someone asked me, what do you want to do when you grow up? Typical question. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I replied, well, I'm thinking about becoming a religious sister. Um, and they said, well, what order? And at that time I was thinking Dominicans because all my favorite saints were Dominicans. <laughs> and the reply that someone gave me was, well, so you want to be a teacher then? And I thought, no, I don't want to be just a teacher. I want to be a bride of Christ. Um, it wasn't a job that I was looking for. It was an identity. It was a personal relationship with our Lord. Um, and so that, that led me to reevaluate why I wanted to become a nun. It wasn't just to teach or to nurse or to do a, uh, an apostolate. It was to be the bride of Christ. However, he wanted me to live that. And then I, I realized it was, for me, it was a call to the cloister, to the contemplative life. Um, but it, it only made sense in terms of a spousal relationship. It wasn't a job by any stretch of the imagination. Well, that is the central theme of, of the book um, that, that you and your sisters have written. And I was, uh, I learned a lot about how you see the marriage that you practice uh, with all of the tokens that a secular marriage has with gold rings and a wedding cake and how this intimacy and companionship with Jesus is kindled in, in your heart, which is a, a loving cup and lights up your life. How do you understand now that you've been living, you know, this contemplative life, how do you understand that, that marriage? Is it a metaphor? Uh, just trying to think of the most intimate word we have for human relationships to put it in a mystical one, or is how does it work? Uh, tell, tell somebody who has no idea. <laughs> no, I think it's a beautiful question. Um, and I think in, in a way you can find the answer in scripture uh, in St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians in chapter five, he, he looks at Christian matrimony and says, this is a sign. Um, I speak in reference with Christ, with the relationship between Christ and the church. So we see there, St. Paul looks at the beautiful relationship between man and woman as a sign of the relationship that is between Christ and the church, and indeed of the God and the soul. Um, but if, if we see marriage that way, Christian marriage, then the religious life is not so much a sign or a metaphor, but it's the reality. Um, Christian marriage is the sign of this reality of the relationship between the Christian and Christ. Um, so it, in a way, um, we can look at marriage to understand our life a little bit better. Mm -hmm. We can see the, the mutual longing in marriage, the um, openness to fruitfulness, and these things 
as signs of what we have in reality too. So the mutual belonging between God and the soul and the openness to fruitfulness as the life of grace that we're supposed to um, benefit from, but also for we're supposed to benefit others out in the world. We're supposed to obtain grace for their spiritual life. Um, so in, in a sense, we have the reality that marriage is the sign of, uh, and it's a great privilege to to try to understand that yeah, that's a that's a brilliant answer. So I have it backwards. Uh, our poor oh. effort at marriage, uh, we, you know, I'm a bit of very flawed husband. My wife is, I'm sure, also an imperfect woman, and we're doing our best. But you have a perfect spouse, uh, and so does our church, right? Because the church is the bride of Christ, yeah. and each religious sister is individually the bride of Christ. I, I wonder if the same thing goes for, you know, we talk about God as the Father, uh, in a way, the human father sort of represents that, but of course, he's never going to be perfect, and God is. So, are we? Mm-hmm. We just don't. Is it that we don't yes. have the language, or that we have? We secular people have <laughs> taken the language and added all our flaws into it, and then we go back, we reflect back on the original, and we're like, "Well, that's not what this is." Perhaps so. Yeah. We bring up the, the image of fatherhood. I think yeah. again of Saint Paul when he says, "Every every fatherhood is named from the heavenly fatherhood." Um, so I think maybe for from our human perspective, we think that we have the the reality or the full understanding of marriage, of fatherhood, and all these things, and we don't understand that we just have the shadows yeah. of what is really in God. That's, so it's it's mysterious. Okay. But he's the real father, and our fathers are. Are participating in that in their mm-hmm. limited way and did, did you know this your whole life even when you were so young you didn't have the words for it because to, to use a life of chastity obedience and poverty is very countercultural. did people look at you <laughs> in a funny way when you were a teenage girl um did you always know this i i had a very strong sense from when i was about seven or eight um that that was what god wanted me to do and of course as i grew up and i um, I thought about other ways of life. There were, I, I thought, well, maybe I should consider other vocations. So it was a discernment process for me. It yeah. took a while. Um, but I, I did get the, the confused looks when I did say I'm considering religious life. People would say, but why? <laughs> um, but I, and your, and your parents too, right? They my were, response they were was, happy. My, my, my parents were very supportive. I think yeah. they understood better than most parents, um, the idea of belonging to Christ in that way. I don't know if when I was little, I ever thought of being a bride of Christ. Um, that I think came as I grew, uh, but I did think of of wanting to belong entirely to him. Yeah. Okay, so the, the book uh, takes us a day in the life of Benedictine yeah. sisters, and then also a year in the life, which, you know, has a, everything has a rhythm and a season to it. And even though you live in a contemplative order, there's a lot of activity because you got a lot of work. Um, so I, I love the emphasis in your book on farming, on sewing, on carpentry, cleaning, recording music. And of course, there's a nun with a chainsaw. So would you like to uh, tell us a bit about all the different tasks you have as, throughout the day yes. and throughout the year? Yes, indeed. Uh, the Benedictine rule is one that's very close to nature. As you said, there's a natural cycle. Um, likewise, in the, the monastic life, there's a cycle. Um, so our Holy Father, St. Benedict, uh, designed the schedule of the day in keeping with the season. 
So we rise before dawn, so that means earlier in the winter time, but later in the summer. And that first two or three hours of the day is consecrated to prayer. There isn't, um, you know, the sun isn't up yet, so it's not um, a time to go out and work in the garden or to start turning on machines in the house. So it's a very quiet contemplative moment. And we spend the first two or three hours chanting the Psalms in the chapel together, and also taking time for private prayer and reading on our own. And then when the sun does come up, we go off to our different tasks, but we work in silence as much as possible to try to continue to keep our gaze on Christ in our hearts, to keep our ourselves attentive to his voice throughout the day. Um, so yes, there's a, a bustle of activity with the different tasks, like the chainsaw is a noisy activity, <laughs> but inside we're trying to keep uh, our heart still and attentive to him. Um, we find the book charming when we look at ourselves because we can see portraits of different sisters in each yeah. of them. So the sister with the chainsaw, we know who that is. <laughs> we know how she goes out with her, um, trying to clear the paths and get brush out of, of the pastures. Um, and the same sister is the one who does the carpentry and things like that. So we, we can see um, individual sisters in little sketches. Um, the tasks that we do are to keep our, our life as self-sufficient as possible. So we have a large garden, we have dairy cows and chickens. Um, we try to do as much of our own maintenance as we can, hence the carpentry, the chainsaw, <laughs> the tractor work. Um, but to support ourselves, our main work is uh, making priestly vestments, which in a way is um, a beautiful expression of our spiritual charism to pray for priests. Um, so we spend a lot of time in silence praying for the priest for whom we are sowing. Um, but these activities, the more um, mundane sorts of things that we do throughout the day, we interrupt periodically to go back to the chapel to pray the Psalms again. Uh, there's a beautiful rhythm between the work and the prayer that St. Benedict was looking for when he, he made the motto Ora et Labora, pray and work. Um, our meals are also taken in silence, except for table reading. So one sister will read aloud. Uh, and this reminds us that even when we nourish our bodies, we can't forget to nourish our souls at the same time. Um, and there's one hour a day for recreation when we're free to talk intimately, uh, familiarly with our sisters. And we usually take a walk or do some simple manual labor while we do this. But the important thing about recreation is the talking. And, and some people will say the health of the monastic community is gauged by how loud the recreation is. <laughs> so I think that ours is fairly healthy based on just the noise. You can hear the laughter all over the house. Um, and then by the end of the day, um, as the sun sets, we have another moment for prayer in the chapel, the Compline prayer. And then we go back into grand silence and we don't speak at all from Compline until um, prime the next morning. And that's the most interior time when um, we don't speak to one another so that we can be most available, most attentive to the divine spouse. So that's the cycle of the day. Yeah. And what time the, can you just give us an idea? Like what time do you go to bed and what time do you get up? Oh yes, we usually retire by nine o'clock and we're up by five or a little before five, depending again on the season. Yeah, so in the summertime, we're up at 4.50. I remember reading the Order of St. Benedict some years ago, and I read in that introduction that he had started with a very 
um, slightly more severe one, but he found that it was, uh, he found that he needed to soften it up a little bit, make it a little more human, a little less rigid, and that it took him a while to find the perfect balance. Is that a, is that something that you have found that it's just right? I, I think it is. There's a, a real genius in the Holy Rule, the way St. Benedict is deferential to the abbot or the, the superior of the house. Um, in that way, we aren't subscribing to what could become a dead letter <clears throat> or trying to apply a, a, a rule without attention to circumstances or individuals. Um, but St. Benedict always refers back to the abbot and says that he could um, he could vary things as needed by circumstances or individuals. Um, and he even cautions the abbot, don't drive your flocks too hard, lest they perish in a single day. Uh, so he he realized the need to have a living rule in the figure of the superior. Mm-hmm. Now that said, the superior doesn't have license. He can't do whatever he wants. He has to be obedient to the spirit of the rule. But I think that the um, that cooperation between the written rule and the living um, the living guide is is what makes the Benedictine rule so enduring. That's I sorry I interrupted. Continue telling us about the the rhythm of the year. Indeed. So the the yearly rhythm is based again on the natural cycle, the seasons. So during the summer we have much more time outside, um, trying to take care of the garden. Um, there's more time in the daylight, so we get up earlier, retire later, but it's also very hot in the main part of the day. So St. Benedict allows for a siesta afternoon and private prayer during that hot time of the day. Um, and then there's more time in the cool of the morning or evening to go out and work in the fields. Um, there's also not um, a class time, and this goes this is, I think, the origins of our academic year in the summertime when more help was needed in the fields and the children would come out, they wouldn't have their classes. So similarly, the monks and the nuns don't have their classes during the summer to make more time uh, for the the upkeep of the garden. But then as the year closes, um, the, the fall comes, then um, we spend more time inside. For us, the vestment um, making is very fruitful during the winter months. And there's also more time for the class studies. So the, the younger sisters can study monastic history and spirituality, chant and Latin, um, theology and philosophy, all the sorts of things that are needed in a monastic formation. Um, there's also a rhythm that comes with the liturgical year. So in the fall, uh, as the old year closes and the new year begins with Advent, we try to have our annual retreat of a very fruitful time of private prayer, um, spiritual instruction from our retreat master. And it, it prepares us to start a new year to really make a good effort at the beginning of the new liturgical year, um, new, new energy to progress in uh, the spiritual life. So that we have that fall retreat and then the season of Advent as the impetus for the new year. Um, And then as we go through the cycle of Christ's mysteries, the culminating point is, of course, Easter. Um, And that corresponds with the beautiful reflowering of the spring. Um, But then after after Easter, we we get into the the summer of busyness again. And um, it, how do you say, we, we take with us all of the mysteries of Christ that we've been contemplating 
up to that point in the year and um, the final part of the liturgical year is absorbing those mysteries. Um, so yes, there, there are different ways to look at the cycle, I guess would be one way to put it. You can see the liturgical rhythm, the natural rhythm, and the Benedictine rule tries to um, keep time with both. And when you are reading, what, what do you read? Uh, scripture is, of course, the, the bread and butter of the monastic reading. Uh-huh. Um, but we also have a, a number of favorite authors. Um, some of the, the great classics, um, the imitation of Christ or the Holy Rule, uh, commentaries on the Holy Rule by Holy Benedictines, Dom Delat or Dom Armian. Um, some of these authors I didn't know when I was in the world. I didn't know that until I entered the Benedictine monastery, but um, Dom Columba Marmion, a saintly soul from the early 20th century, and also Dom Prosper Granger, well known for the liturgical year. Um, so many of these authors uh, teach us how to enter more fully into the Benedictine monastic life. Um, but then the, there's a whole other um, scope for reading when we, we look at other religious families. We benefit from St. Teresa of Avila and St. John of the Cross or, um, you know, St. Uh, Francis of Assisi or any of these other writers, we can draw from them and apply them to our own life. Do you ever leave? <laughs> do you go do to you uh, the movies or do you go to the <laughs> supermarket? Or <laughs> Well, ideally, we, we go out as infrequently as possible. Yeah. We don't have papal enclosure with the grill, <laughs> but we do have constitutional enclosure which means that the the monk or the nun should stay in her cloister as much as possible. Um, while we're on foundation here in the Ozarks, we don't have as many um, people around to do errands for us, say oblates or just friends of the community to do the shopping. So we will go off and do the shopping, um, which has been a beautiful thing in its way too, because um, people seeing us in our habits are curious and even edified. And I think it's been a bit of, an evangelization <laughs> in a more secular area. Um, but we try to limit those trips out as much as possible. Um, we feel like a fish out of water when we leave our cloister. It's always relieved to come back. And more recreational things, say the movies, that's that's out of the picture for us entirely. Yeah. Um, it has about- been a blessing to go back to our mother house. Mm-hmm. Yes. I was just going to say, do you visit your parents and your sister? Your your ah yeah no actually the, our parents will come here our families uh-huh. will come and visit us here in our cloister and I think that's also a very mutually uh, edifying because on the one hand our our parents our families our friends they see us in our natural environment they see us where we belong and we on the other hand we don't have to go back out to the world and try to adapt to a different way of life a different rhythm. So a couple of times a year, our families will come out for a visit and they they observe the rhythm that we have throughout the day. They attend the hours of prayer. Um, they respect our going back into the cloister for recreation and the community meal, um, all the hours of the divine office. Um, and I think that they leave with the sense of peace that the life of prayer is um, so, that it fosters so beautifully. Uh, and I think that they understand our vocation better seeing us in where we belong. I think if we were to leave to go back to the secular environment, it would be jarring for the mm-hmm. nun and it might be jarring for the family too, because she doesn't belong in that environment anymore. So yeah, um, it's a sacrifice for the families to give a child to, to God. But I think 
when they see that their child blossoming in that environment, then they understand the um, the fruitfulness of that sort of way of life. Yeah. No, I, uh, even in my own lifetime, I think the world has gotten faster and more fractured and uh, noisy. And I suppose everybody says that always. Yeah. <laughs> um, but how has the state <laughs> but especially of, our yeah. day. yeah, no, and especially when I look at young people uh, on their, on their telephones and things like that, it's, it's, it's a, it's a brave new world. Um, but how has the state of religious life in the United States uh, changed in the last generations you're a very young community right. is that is that unusual mm -hmm. in a way um in a way it's uh, it's a response to the crisis that religious life experienced in the 60s and 70s and uh, this is something that sister wilhelmina experienced firsthand um so in the upheaval the social upheaval and to some extent the upheaval within the church in the 60s and 70s religious life was really attacked and the nuns were encouraged to put off their habits, to leave their cloisters, to live a more secular life. And it was devastating on the individual and on the religious order. Um, Sister Wilhelmina saw many difficulties in um, abandoning traditional religious life, but she, and so she fought for years to try to make a, a traditional branch of her order. When that didn't prove viable, she realized it'd be easier to start fresh than to try to reform. And I think this is something that many other religious have thought too. You know, it's easier just to begin afresh rather than to try to uh, convince everyone in your in your peer group, as it were, to to try to put on a new um, a new habit, a new way of living. Um, so she did start fresh, and there there are many challenges involved with that because you bring in young women who are unformed in monastic life, who have a lot to learn. But it was, um, it, God really blessed it and, t and took us through all of those trials of the early days. So at this point, we have um, I, over 50, maybe close to 60 sisters now in the two houses, with more coming in the fall. Um, and I think that other communities have seen this too. So rather than trying to put new wine in old wineskins in a certain mm -hmm. sense, they are starting fresh. But the, the way they're starting fresh is by going back to the traditions that were tested over 2,000 years of church history. Um, they're going back to the, the traditional habit, the silence in the cloister, the um, traditional religious observances. Um, and this is attracting young people. That's kind of the remarkable thing um, where, where young people see the authentic religious life lived. I think it meets their idealism um, and they're they're willing to try to to sacrifice to give a lot in order to live that authentic life too. Um, is they don't want to live um, just like secular women. If if they want to be a religious, they want to go all the way. Yeah. So uh, I think that this is something that has has happened in our country in a large way in the past say twenty twenty five years. Um, and I think it is bringing a resurgence in religious life. That's that's wonderful. And it makes perfect sense because out here, we're noisy. Our attention is fractured. People are anxious. People are uh, confused about which way is up and which way is down. And um, it's it's uh, you're you're giving a, a lot of solace, I think, to us all, even just by praying for us, uh, even for those of us who never visit. Gower, Missouri. Um, 
I, I'm, I, as I listen to you speak about Sister Wilhelmina, I, I realize what a holy woman she is. And I think our listeners might not know that her, her life is super interesting because she, to be a young African-American woman at that time in Missouri and a Roman Catholic who wanted to do things in Latin, right? She was a very, yes. she was a very special person how did how did she become the woman yes. she 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 is yes yes she has a remarkable history and our community did publish a book about her life called god's will um and in it you can see um it, the extraordinary faith that her family had for the a few generations even before sister wilhelmina they really valued their, their catholic faith and so when sister was born, it was in a family that experienced a lot of segregation, a lot of discrimination, um, very severe poverty. But as she said, our, we didn't feel like we were poor because our wealth was the Catholic faith. And this, I think, formed her from a very early age so that when she was quite young, she actually wrote to uh, a religious community of sisters and said, I want to join. What do I need to do? She, I'm only nine, but I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> So she actually did join very soon after graduating from high school, and it was a, a community for black women um, because, again, of the segregation of the times, um, and it was a teaching order. And she persevered in that community for like, over 70 years. She was very faithful. Um, even when she stopped teaching, she worked in the archives of the community and prepared materials to write a history of that community. Um, so she was a very dedicated member and she loved her religious family and she wasn't daunted by difficulties as as i said when she grew up she she encountered discrimination and poverty and all these things but always um recognizing the grace of god to overcome those things um and a great confidence in his providence to arrange dispose events uh for the good of souls Mm -hmm. uh, and I think these things suited, they fitted her to take on the very difficult role of founding a new community. She was ready for poverty all over again and for um, being segregated by wanting to, to do things the traditional or the, uh, the Latin way. You know, she, she wasn't phased by those sorts of things the way other people might have been. Yeah. Um, and just listening to you speak about this makes me realize that once again, I am thinking about matters backwards, where I'm asking about the original marriage in terms of the human marriage, and I'm asking about recent history in the 20th and 21st century. But you're telling me about a history that's been going on for a, a millennium and a half. Uh, and um, since, you know, for centuries and centuries and centuries, uh, and I think we Catholics need to remember that, that even if things look... Uh, um, a little frightening in the news, daily news. Uh, this is this too shall pass. It'll. Uh, we've gone through many different weird things <laughs> over over time. Yes, um, indeed. Yeah, and it's so encouraging to see God's providence through all those difficult times in the church's history. Yeah. 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 Well, what else should I ask you about before we part company today? Yes, maybe just a little bit about our charism. Um, as Benedictines of Mary. So I've spoken a little bit about the Benedictine life, um, but we have a Marian consecration, um, which I think is, is significant. We see ourselves as 
trying to emulate the life of Our Lady on Earth after the Lord's ascension, but before her own assumption. Mm-hmm. So what did Our Lady do during those years? You know, she yeah. was entrusted at the foot of the cross to St. John. And the tradition is that St. John took her from the persecutions in Jerusalem to a safe place in Ephesus, which is in present day Turkey. Um, and that's where she lived out those last decades of her life. Um, and you might know our mother house in Gower is called Our Lady of Ephesus because we look to that hidden life that she lived in Ephesus to see the model of our own life. And we recognize that she would have spent her days praying, reflecting on the mysteries of the life of Christ, uh, praying for the needs of the new church, and especially for the apostles, who at that point were dispersed all throughout the known world. There's even a tradition that Our Lady, while she was still living, appeared to St. James in Spain um, to encourage him in his apostolate. Um, but she was still at Ephesus at that time, so yeah. maybe we could call it a vision or by location or something. But she was very present um, to her spiritual sons. And then she provided a place of spiritual refreshment for them. So St. Paul says in one of his epistles, I will tarry at Ephesus this winter. And so you know he would have gone to Ephesus to see the Mother of God and to, to spend that time in her presence. Um, so as Benedictines of Mary, we see our responsibility to pray for the church and especially for priests. And we see, um, we try to make a place of retreat available for the priests. So we've had, um, even in our little house here on Foundation, we've had a number of priests come for a week at a time to to have that time of interior refreshment that they need in order to be fruitful in the apostolate. And the, the vestment making is just a sign, I think, of that spiritual apostolate that we have to minister to the priest. Yeah, because you clothe them in fabric, but you also clothe them in your prayers as you as you care for the priests who um i i think it's wonderful that you that you do that uh the re the those last decades do you have an idea how long our lady stayed on earth before her assumption how long she lived what's the tradition yes i think some people i'm trying to remember the tradition um i think that some people say she was probably about 48 at our lord's crucifixion and then some people say she passed away when she was 58, but I think some even say later, maybe when she was closer to 70. But I don't know um, all, all of the possibilities there. I think Anne Catherine Emmerich has some ideas or Mary Vigreda has others yeah. in, her, in their lives of Our Lady. Um, but however long it was or short, it's beautiful to think that our Lord could have taken her with him when he ascended into heaven. Of all people, she was ready for heaven, <laughs> but he didn't want to leave his church an orphan, yeah. right? And so he was going to remain by his presence in the Blessed Sacrament, but he also wanted a mother to remain there, a visible presence that could be a, a source of strength and of light for his priests and for all souls. Mm -hmm. And do you feel uh, especially close to Our Lady just in your daily life and in, in your prayers? Can you, do you feel her hand on your shoulder or how does, yes. how does that work? In... Yes, uh, it's, it's very special. So um, when we rise, the first thing we do in the morning is we kiss the floor, we make an act of consecration to Our Lady and we offer her the whole day. And we renew this consecration at the beginning of each task by saying a Hail Mary and renewing our consecration, I am all thine and all that I have is thine. Um, 
And so with these little prayers throughout the day, we we lift our gaze back up to Our Lady. We ask her for her light, her intercession at each moment. And even when we're distracted, we know Our Lady is not distracted. <laughs> and she's attentive to us and knows what we need. <laughs> That's wonderful. Well, thank you for sharing all of that. It has been edifying and a pure delight to talk with you this morning. Uh, and I wonder if you would close today with, uh, our, with a Hail Mary for us. Yes, thank you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Amen. I am all thine, and all that I have is thine, most loving Mother. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. Thank you so much, Sister Mary Josepha. So great pleasure for me today. Thank you. I'm very, very grateful for your time. God bless you. Nails, spear shall pierce him through the cross. Be born for me, for you. And hail, hail the word made flesh, the babe, the son of Mary. Chris Odinitz and Sister Mary Josepha of the Eucharist recorded this conversation, episode 68, on Tuesday, August 8, 2023. That's the feast day of St. Dominic, Santo Domingo de Guzman, founder of the Order of Preachers in 1215, who received the rosary from Our Lady in the year 1208. Before St. Dominic was born, his mother had prayed to have a child at the monastery of Santo Domingo de Silos in Spain. She had a vision of the dog bursting from her womb with a torch in his mouth that set the world on fire. That very picture of the dog on the window of that very monastery for whom the boy was named is the logo for this podcast, and the picture is taken with the kind permission of the Dominican friars of England, Scotland, and Wales from their website www.english.op.org. Happy Feast Day, brothers! Our music is from Josh and Margot of the Great Space Coaster Band. Find out more about them at www.gscoasterband.org. I'm Chris Odinius. Thanks so much for listening. And I'll talk to you soon. This, this is Christ the King whom shepherds guide.